is Dr. Pat Basile. Dr. Ernie Vecchio is one of our very special guests on the show today. And let me just tell you a little bit about his work. He talks about what it means to go through the process of being wounded, you know, what it is, why we go through it, and what are some of the lessons we learn from it. And so, you know, he, he talks about the wound as a way to develop insight from your life experiences. And that's what he was talking about, examining the source of the wound, the first trauma, you know, that cuts away. We talk about this in crust busting quite a bit. Um, that a lot of times we're faced with a challenge or an obstacle in today's moment, in this moment right now, and yet it triggers something very old. And some people refer to it as overreacting. Other people refer to it as, you know, being too emotional. But there really is a path that one could follow to figure out what's going on. That's what Dr. Ernie Vecchio has been able to do. And I believe he is back with us. We were talking about your early life's path and, you know, what some of the things were that you learned. Really interesting enough, you know, learning from uh, what most people would consider a place that you wouldn't be able to learn very much from, but you had the opposite experience. Yes. Uh, I kind of figured out at a very young age that there was a larger truth than the one that I was living. Uh-huh. And that was, and that was very, or, or the one that I was born into, I should say. And then having some very key people and some opportunities kind of around me that I that I was able to get a, to get a hold of and put my teeth into made the difference. So you know, I know that there's a question that many people have asked you over time. You know, they they've asked you you know about woundedness and about developing insights from it. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times, aren't we so deeply immersed in the stuff of the moment? I'm just going to use stuff because this is like a radio show, right? In the mm-hmm. stuff of the moment that it's hard to peel it away, to move it away, to push it away, you know, to figure out that there's even light at the end of the tunnel. How is it that we can learn from uh, our early experience and resolve some of these early issues? Well, I think that the key is, uh, at least I found out, that you have some level of compassion for the self. Uh, ah. That you let yourself up off the mat at some point. You know, that mm. uh, the technical word for that is mercy. <laughs> that you kind of grant yourself some mercy. Oh, boy. You know, and we're that, so willing to do that for other people, but rarely have oh. I heard it uh, that where we do it for ourselves. And let's talk about this. Are there various kinds of wounds or, you know, how do we categorize the wounds that we have? And the reason I bring it up is because, you know, we do tend to judge ourselves and other people. Sometimes we judge ourselves by saying, oh, man, you know, get over it. That's no big deal. And yet if you were to explain the situation to somebody else, they'd be in shock. So how do we look at these wounds that happen in our lives? And, you know, from your perspective, because clearly if you leave it up to us, we'll create a whole complete scenario around them. Well, it seemed to shift, uh, at, at least in my career, it shifted, but it's also, I think, in the culture. Uh, we used to be a guilt-based society, and guilt is uh, self-blame and self-punishment, and guilt is I've made a mistake. We've kind of evolved into a shame-based culture, and which means I am a mistake. And so shame really kind of is a wound to the soul where the self-worth and self-esteem of the individual kind of leaks out that hole, you see. Well, then, you know, when we think about shame and we think about, you know, some of the things in our lives and, you know, what you said is really very shocking, actually, um, because now I'm just not, you know, ashamed that I made a mistake. Now I've become shame. What is it about how we've moved as a culture from 
having shame around making a mistake to actually becoming the mistake, becoming the shame. And so this is really something that has affected people of all generations. As Dr. Ernie says in, in his book, you have to realize that your internal and exter- external worlds make a whole life. So it isn't just what we do on the outside. It isn't the nice car we want to have and we have the house, the children, all of that. But what is the connection between the inner and the outer? What is that inner dialogue that's going on with you? And then how do you realize that all of the distractions that are coming up for you are a way for your ego, a way for you to not step into the full authentic truth of who you are? And I wanted to talk with you about that in the context of being wounded. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, the, the wounds that we get in the beginning, and I was saying before the, uh, before the break, is, is that, um, that typically they're shame-based, which means it has to be done to us. Uh, and if you, if you have a shame-based wound, then you don't have a way to accumulate any kind of worth or whatever, and in result of that uh, experience, you end up kind of creating the dialogue that goes with being ashamed of who you are. Uh, and if it's shame on you or shame on them, if you if you have a shame-based problem, then then it's always going to be shame on you. You get that conditioning, and then you also get the statements from the people that are that are you know kind of kind of training you and teaching you at the time, and that literally you know is internalized and becomes your own internal script, if you will. Well, you know, and it's interesting about the internal script, you know, because we and I want to ask you about this. Is isn't it true that a lot of times we show up in a certain persona? And everybody thinks we're too, you know, too cool to fool, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? Take a look mm-hmm. at, you know, take a look at him. Take a look at her. They've got their act together. Look at them. You know, they're doing a great job. Their their lives must be the slide and glide of life. And, you know, that's not necessarily true. But we also have delusions, according to, you know, what you've written, illusions about who we are, what we do, and it affects us in multiple ways. And I guess my question would be, how do we get to the truth of who we are? Well, I think the first step in that is to pay real close attention to what's happened to your spirit because I tell people all the time that that, that when you're when you come into the world and you're not really allowed to be who you were intended to be, your spirit gets broken. And a broken spirit tends to turn into a mean spirit. And there's only two there's only two ways to go or two places to go with mean spirit in this that's either in at the self or out of the world. And most of us, if we're normal, we go in with it. Uh, we, you can pick up the paper and see the folks that go out with it. And so, so being being aware of how you actually internalize the energy that you experienced at the time, and that would be the anger, the fear, the resentment, the guilt, the shame. How you internalize that? What context did you come up with as you were, you know, uh, comparing yourself against that? And uh, that's very, very important. And when you think about when you think about when this hits us in terms of our development, it's usually around junior high school that we're that we're hit with all these feelings about about things. And uh, that's a real critical time to sort out who we are and where we fit in the world. And if we don't sort it out then and we delay it, then we play it out in relationships later on. You know, I want to talk to you because you talk quite a bit about the ego and ego motivations. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, where ego and emotions connect or not. And this I, this has been a question that I've had for, for quite some time. You know, there's the idea of emotions, and we've studied this now, really, just about everybody's gotten on the bandwagon in terms of emotional intelligence and what that means. Uh, then we have the conversation of the ego, but rarely have I heard a conversation that includes both. 
And I wanted to ask you, uh, where do emotions fit in? Are they the things that tell us we're wounded, or can they actually mask the true wound? I think they tell us that we're wounded. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is, is that I make the distinction between feeling and emoting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you look at emoting, it is tied to memory, and which means that the organ of perception is the brain, and which also means that, the, that it's tied to the past. And so it's a reenactment, if you will, of a previous experience. Uh, a feeling is a reaction to the given moment, and the organ of perception is the heart. So I tell people all the time to feel more and emote less. And so we say all the time that a thought would go nowhere without a charge. Well, that charge is emotion. And the ego would not have it, would have any energy if it were not for emotion. So there really is a difference. Do we have control over one and not over the other? Or do we not have control over either? I think if you're conscious and awake, you can make the distinction in a millisecond. If okay, you're asleep, good. If you're asleep and you're unconscious, then you are at the mercy of your emotions. And that's really a really good point that you're making, Dr. Ernie, because the bottom line is we want to grab it at that millisecond because mm-hmm. if we don't grab it at the millisecond, it starts to affect our bodies in, in a very negative way. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, of course, we can have a conversation about stress and what that means, but you're right. You know, isn't there, isn't there healing in being able to recognize it, as you said, in a millisecond? Yeah, if you can make the distinction between a feeling and an emotion, and, and this is what most of us don't do, we think that we, we have those two merged. Conceptually, we have them merged, and a feeling really is a present in the body experience. And it's got nothing to do with the brain. <laughs> uh, I mean, in the sense of the total, you know, larger picture. But uh, if you want to get out of the ego, you know, we say all the time, you know, what is the, you know, what is absence? What is presence? Well, absence is being in your head and not in your body. Being present is being in your body. Well, present means here right now, and here right now means you are feeling instead of emoting, which means you're not reenacting a previous experience or a previous script. And so a lot of people, if they can make that one distinction, absolutely turns their life around. And, you know, I want to talk about this in the context of fear, and then we'll, and then we'll talk about ego. Because when we're talking about emotions and we're talking about response and reaction, you know, there is much to be said about fear. There have been many books written about fear. We talk about fear. We talk about it as an obstacle. We rarely talk about fear as a teacher or something that, you know, possibly could help us. And so everyone is telling us, get rid of the fear, move beyond the fear. And there have been, there have been others that have said, no, 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 no. Feel the fear and do it anyway. And I just want to get a sense from you, if we are at this place where recognizing our emotions or how we emote in a nanosecond, where does fear come in? Well, you know what? I teach these concepts to people that are mentally retarded. (laughs) And I'm talking IQs in the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think I do with the concept of fear with a newly retarded adult? What I basically do is teach them the story of the three little pigs and tell them about the wolf and ask them where the wolf is in relationship to the pig. And the wolf, and the wolf is always behind the pig. And, the, and it's only a problem if the pig is looking over his shoulder at that wolf because then, then they're running through life blindly. In fact, they run past the first house. If you remember in the story, there's a house of straw, sticks, and bricks. Well, those are developmental stages of being able to handle and cope with fear. And so that little childhood story actually tells us what to do with fear. Always stay one step ahead of it, keep it behind you, and keep your eyes forward. If you do that, you move to straw, sticks, to bricks. 
and and each time the wolf or, or fear uh, confronts you in a different kind of way. And finally, when you get to the house of bricks, you can you convert fear back to an adult's perception because remember, fear creates when we're little, and so it seems you know it seems ominous and foreboding. But in actuality, uh, it, you're seeing the the world in the eyes of a child. Once you convert fear. Uh, to a present-day perception, then it, it goes back to its original form. And fear, remember, exists in the body to warn us of impending threat. We don't want to get rid of fear. We need it. Oh, well, I want to ask you about this because I've, I've done a number of interviews these days about the economy and definitely an area that I've spent a lot of time in is this area of uh, insecurity and fear of job loss in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And And, you know, I never thought I'd be able to say this, Dr. Ernie, but you know, there's there's a point in time that we live in right now where it's almost at an epidemic stage. Some yeah. people pay it mind, others don't. But almost everyone that you would talk with has a notion of some kind that they might lose their job. Very mm-hmm. different than where we were about 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. um, and so I want to ask you, this is something that people live with every day. Mm-hmm. What do you think we're doing with that? Are we coping with that okay? Well, you know what's sad about it is since Katrina and now since the oil spill and yeah. since the you know since the planes hit the towers in New York, post traumatic stress disorder has become like normal. Uh in fact insurance companies are, are are refusing to pay for it. They're saying that if everybody has it then nobody has it. Um and so yeah, there is a, a significant degree of uncertainty in the country and a and a lot of fear and my response to it you know, when I meet with people, you know, personally, is is that all it's really doing is putting you into a position where you have to adapt and improvise. Don't underestimate your capacity to do that. And if you haven't done that in a long time, well, then you're due. It's sad that, you know, that it, that it may be, you know, a thing that's out of your control that, that, that throws you there, but, but you should be learning how to adapt and to cope and to improvise. That's what makes life richer. You see, being able to go with the ebb and the flow of things rather than to be stuck and static in your place. What's really interesting about this is, the, it's, you know, and I love this conversation, and I'm so thrilled that you joined us here, Dr. Vecchio. Really, I'm just really honored. Um, one of the things that I love about what we're talking about is, you know, and I think about my own situation where my job loss was very abrupt, uh, and I really instigated it in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I could not implement a downsizing for the company, and that was my job, you know, mm-hmm. to be part of HR at an executive level and, you know, do that. And I couldn't do it. It was just unfair. It was inhumane. And, of course, you can't – there's some things that you can say no to and other things that if you say no to them, the answer is no back to you. And I could have never have predicted – how that traumatic experience would be the the catalyst for where I am today. I couldn't have predicted it in the moment. And I want to ask you, what are some of the things, what are some of the tools, what can we learn about this thing we call fear that could help us plan an exquisite life? You just described, uh, I I probably have worked with, uh, at least been exposed to 10,000 patients in a trauma hospital in my career and have been intimately involved in about 6,000 people's recovery from amputation, quadriplegia, all different kinds of trauma. And you just gave the, gave the response that, that, that everybody has the opportunity to give. And that is, 
it's a wake up to what's important and it's, it transforms us because it throws us into our body and makes us look at our life in a larger perspective. But as far as the, the fear component uh, goes, it, it gets back to what I said before, is, is that fear is, is here to warn us of impending threat. The problem we have in the culture, I believe, is that we've lost the capacity to distinguish between real fear and imagined fear, and that's the definition of paranoia. And we have a paranoid culture, and so you don't want to be paranoid. You want to be able to make a distinction between what's real and what's made up. Uh, if you can't do that, then you've got a problem, you see. And oh, that's boy. Where, and that's where a lot of us are, is that we're stuck in real fears versus imagined fears, and we can't tell a difference. If you actually are, have your eyes forward and are looking through, through a present-day experience, then you can see it through the eyes of an adult. If you're, if you, if it drums up all of your childhood fears, you know, in some accumulative way, and then you're looking at it, then it's a totally different ballgame. Okay, so let's talk about one of my favorite topics, what you call divinity, and I want to talk about it in the context of the ego. It's almost as if there have been some that have said ego and divinity cannot coexist, and I just want to get your take on that. Remember when we use the word ego, we're talking about personality. And that's really all we're doing. And yeah. so uh, when we're talking about the side of the self that can't exist with divinity, we're talking about the darker side of the ego. And that's the part of the self that was repressed. That's the mean spirit that I was talking about earlier that was repressed and really you know, came out ugly. And, you know, it comes out ugly against the self or against the culture. So in that context, we think the two cannot exist together. When in actuality, uh, there's no such thing in the psyche as waste. And so you can literally take that dark material, if you will, if you shine light on it, which means awareness, uh, and, and do it with compassion, and that dark will convert. It's almost like taking a diamond, I mean, taking a piece of coal and compressing it into a diamond, which is what a diamond is, compressed carbon. That's where the divine characteristic in the human experience is, but you have to be able to have self-love in the process, and that's the catch because we have that turned around. Well, I have to ask you a question about self-love, and I, I've often wondered this, and I've really interviewed countless people on the con- about self-love. Uh, you know, do we know how to self-love? Do we know that early on in life and then forget? Or, you know, is this a whole brand-new conversation for our modern-day time? When I, when I examine this in the, in the new book that I'm doing, we actually came into the world being told that we don't need self-love, that we already oh. have it. You know, love others as you love yourself. You know, that's the golden rule. Well, and so, and so the idea is you've already got self-love. So love others as you're doing that to yourself. It's an egoic, sadly, an egoic statement that we already have all the love that we need when in actuality we don't feel that way. So self-love gets merged again with self-esteem and self-confidence. Self-love is a very humbling experience. In fact, it's the, it's the head beneath the wing of, of the, of that person that thinks they're ugly and when they look in the water and see their reflection, it's actually, that they're actually a swan. The idea that, that there's a humbling component to it is what people tend to forget. Uh, and so self-love to me is compassion. It's the ability to suffer with oneself instead of suffering for oneself. And that's the distortion that I discovered, you know, working with my patients and working with my clients over the years is we have the concept twisted around, we think it's to suffer for, to sacrifice ourselves for others. This is how we define compassion. And so, therefore, when we're turning that against ourselves, you can see what happens. We murder ourselves in the same way. That's a very interesting distinction. You know, there's a question that I think would come up. You know, if we go to that place where, you know, we use what I consider to be the side of compassion that will hold us back, 
then truly it then does, does become an excuse for all of the things that we wish we could do that we can't do. And I, I want to talk about that for a minute because, you know, this is, I think, an opening for the ego to step in. We are becoming, if not already, uh, a culture of achieving, 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 achieving. Oh, yeah. We are becoming a culture of doing, doing, doing. You know, even our young right now, um, there is a state of doing. It used to be you could actually sit and watch a movie or watch television. Now people go into post-traumatic stress disorder because you can't text during a movie. And so, you know, I want to ask you this question about what kind of role is the ego playing in today's society and how does that relate to the conflict of being? Well, the ego, again, if it isn't present tense, if it isn't brought into the present, uh, then it's getting in the way because it's a false concept of I and me. And so uh, we, have to, we have to fix the ego first before it's going to be able to even trust love. You know, I tell people all the time that you've got a little kid inside of you that doesn't like adults <laughs> because, because, because adults failed it in the beginning and it needs to be, you know, convinced. That, that, it's, that it can trust you. It needs consistency. And so we, we, we've got to fix the ego first. So said it from, from my perspective as a psychologist, we are a culture of personality disorder that needs to take responsibility for that disorder. This is why we're talking about ego so much. And, and from, from where I'm at, I've been at this for 30-some years, I find great irony in the fact that, that we're talking so much today about ego uh, because, yes, we should have been talking about it a long time ago. Yeah, uh, and uh, don't you think that the reason we haven't been talking about it is because there's been so many different, and I'm just going to call them descriptions, descriptions of it. Bad ego, let go of your ego, ah, your ego showed up, you know, that kind of conversation. And it would almost, it would almost point to the, the fact that many people believe there's no role for the ego. Well, that's the mistake, isn't it? And certainly I think what's happened is we've diagnosed it. We've given it, we've labeled it. And because it's labeled and it isn't a positive label, people don't want to look at it. Years ago, when I used to work for the churches, I did I did testing for people that were um, getting engaged, and they would have to go through an experience of uh, of looking at each other very closely before they you know went down the aisle together. Well, they were looking at ego, looking at personality dynamics, and how these personality dynamics may conflict once they got married. Well, this is what we need to be doing every day in relationships with everybody. No kidding. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you know, before you get to the point in relationship where you you look at each other and you say. What the heck has happened? But you're absolutely right. We don't want to examine. We don't want to look. However, I will say that from where I sit, and I'd love for you to weigh in on this, is the whole idea of the self-help movement, I'm going to call it that, has really opened the doors for a lot of people to take that look. Not everyone may know how to get from where they are to where they want to go, but there are a lot of people peeking through the window. Yeah, I think what's made that happen is the merging of the human potential and spiritual movement. I think oh, that's very that. good. Yeah, those those mergings has made that possible because now that it's a little bit spiritual, now that I can talk about my dark side spiritually, well, that seems okay, <laughs> you know. And so, and so people are doing that and much more comfortable with that idea. Well, what is it that you refer to? And I want to talk about this, you know, because this is you. You also come from a very spiritual base. You talk about activating one's divinity. And I want to know from your perspective what that is and how did you discover it for yourself? 
it's really interesting. I felt like I crossed over with it in terms of my my uh, role as a helper in 1993. I was working with a blind woman who literally uh, was, um, I think, was working before and got laid off from her job and was selling drugs on the side to survive her life, and she got raped and beaten, and that's how she got blinded. Uh, and so she ends up going to prison, comes out of prison, and she comes into my rehab hospital, and she's there to learn how to use a C&I dog and a cane, and she won't eat, she won't bathe, she won't come out of her room. And uh, so I work with her for several months, about three months, I guess, altogether. And she says to me, Ernie, why is it I can see better now as a blind woman than I could ever see when I had my vision? And I said, I don't know, Susan, you tell me, what are you seeing with? And she points to her heart. And so the answer to your question is, is that when, when I talk about activating a person's divinity, I'm talking about putting them in touch with their hearts which is only about six or eight inches away from their head. And that, and we're finding brain cells in the heart, we're finding brain cells in the body, in the stomach, in the liver. The body has its own intelligence, and the heart really is the compass for that intelligence. And I really have a way to assess people in, in terms of their, uh, their position in relationship to that uh, internally, if in fact uh, they are connected with it or if they're passing it out to others. And I will tell you that the majority of people give it away with the idea that it's going to come back tenfold, and they end up coming back with nothing. Okay, let's talk about how to thrive in life. I am a person that believes very optimistically that most people, if not all people, want to really live life full out. That really is a term that you get to define for yourself. And so the question then becomes, what do we do with all this information? How do we move beyond our, move, our wounds so that we can live our best life? Now, I know that this is a more, much more complicated question than we have time for. But I know that you also have some ideas of what we could share with people now. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've discovered in working with people over the years is that they think their life is meaningless. And they yeah. think that because, because they don't have a moral to their story. And so my first answer to the to part of this question would be getting moral to your story. If you, if you go to a theater and the marquee doesn't have a title on it, but it's your life story, and you go inside and you, and you watch the movie the, and the credits are rolling and you haven't got a title or, the, or, the, or all you can come up with is, you know, life sucks and then you die, if that's all you've got, then you haven't got a moral. And so getting a moral to your story means going in and looking at what you've learned from your suffering. What have you learned from your life experiences? Because trust me, they're valuable. And then, and then if, you, if you can get a moral, you can then turn right around and give that to somebody else. The other thing is, is that how much you hold on to self-esteem and self-worth? And if you do have it, you're, you're not supposed to put it in the coffee can out back. You're supposed to pass it on to other people. What I love that. Raise, I love that. Know, what, but what good is it to raise self-esteem if you're not going to give it away to somebody else? And, and that's so really what the show is about. I mean, we yeah. have a whole pay-it-forward yeah. entity to the show. Absolutely. And I made a pact with my clients several years ago that, you know, I'll make you feel okay about yourself, but you've got to promise me that you're going to give it to your wife, your family, your kids, your neighbors. If you can't make that promise, I'm not going to help you. Isn't that because <laughs> you think that, that there is a limitation on self-esteem, self-worth? And so let me hold it here. But if I share it with them, am I going to have less? I think a lot of people don't think that they have a period or they don't have enough that they can share. Yes. And we do the same thing with personal worth. You know, I mean, if we, if we won, if we won a fortune today, once we paid off all of our debts and gave it to the family, we, we would turn around and give it to something that we care about. Well, it's the same thing with self-worth. You know, we should be giving it away to things we care about, and that would be other people. All right, everyone. Remember, heard a lot today. There's something here for everyone. That's exactly what the Pay It Forward message is about. Remember, to pay forward something you've heard, 
open your heart and share something absolutely brilliant with another person. We'll see you next time on the Dr. Pat Show.